Get ready to be inspired by the great things happening in rural education. The Rural Scoop will bring you new ideas and innovative solutions, will dive into education issues, and will highlight what's working in your rural communities. You will hear from a variety of educators, administrators, professionals, and others who will provide relevant and engaging content in each episode. And now, serving up the scoop, here's your host, Dr. Melissa Sadorf. Welcome back, Rural Scoop listeners. I'm glad that you joined us today for a conversation on a topic that is on the minds of many rural leaders that are trying to recruit and retain staff to their rural communities. Uh, Housing is something that many of us are struggling with. John Scholl is the superintendent of the Chino Valley Unified School District, not to be confused with the Chino Valley schools in California. This is in Arizona. And uh, so, John, I'd like to welcome you. Thank you for being here. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. This is an important topic for for us rural school districts. It certainly is. Well, and you know, I like to start by asking uh, you to give us a little bit of background about yourself and your pathway through education, and then introduce us to the Chino Valley School District here in Arizona. Okay, this is actually my 26th year in Chino Valley Schools. Um, I had my 28th year in education. I started out um, as a chemist um, out of college. I have a, a bachelor's degree in chemistry. I was a chemist for five years. Um, I was inspired by my high school chemistry teacher. And after five years, decided, I think I want to go into education and teach others about how much I enjoy chemistry and hopefully share that with, with others. Um, taught it for two years in South Los Angeles County at uh, Cerritos High School. Then my wife and I and my two-week-old daughter moved to Arizona, where her dad grew up in Prescott, and we've been here ever since. When I came to this area, uh, I was a science teacher. I could teach pretty much any science. I could not find a job as a Mm -hmm. science teacher, which is, if you think about that today, I'd be scooped up probably in a second. I was lucky enough to, uh, with some internal changes here at Chino Valley High School, was able to get in. I taught in at Chinaba High School. I taught chemistry, physics, earth science, physical science, life science. And then I had an opportunity to become assistant principal. Did that for three years at the high school. Um, requested a transfer to the middle school to kind of give broaden my experience a little bit. And then um, I was asked to go back to the high school. And during that time as assistant principal, we went through a strategic planning process. And I was on the finance committee and my superintendent at the time uh, thought that I had a knack for finance. I became the business manager, did that Mm -hmm. for six years. And that was my pathway to superintendent, which is now in my seventh year superintendent. Um, I'm actually, um, next year will be my last year. It's time for me to have a change. And I think it's a time for for Chino Valley schools to have a change. So we are working on um, our strategic planning process now so that the next superintendent knows what the what the community and governing board would like to see at the same time that can frame the lens for our governing board to select our new superintendent um, that'll happen at the end of the calendar year. Latino Valley Schools, we're 2,400 students. We're about 15 miles north of Prescott, Arizona, which is about halfway between Flagstaff and Phoenix. Um, it's 100 miles from my uh, office door to downtown Phoenix to kind of give you an idea. Um, the 2,400 kids are in four schools. We have a, um, I really like the setup of our district. We have a pre-K to two school, 
a three through five, a six through eight, and a nine through 12. So every kid in the school in a grade level is at, on the same site. So that's exciting and for professional development purposes. And, and um, also, also kids socially, they, when kids have gone through the district, they, they've been with the same kids um, all, all 13 years. Um, we have our, our community is our school district pretty much has been stable enrollment. Um, we would love to be growing, but we are stable. And I think that's a, while the town is growing, and I think that's, we'll talk about that a little bit different, how, how that's really impacting what we're talking about, the housing. Well, let's get into some of the meat of what we're here to talk about. And that, let's start with uh, describing what has been happening in your district, in your area around educator recruitment and retention, not just for your district, but for your part of the state in the last few years. And I want to qualify that by saying uh, educator means not just teacher, but it means (laughs) anyone that needs to be put in an employment position at a school, whether it's a driver or a secretary or a paraprofessional. Um, Mm -hmm. What does that look like for your district in your region right now? Well, I think it's slim pickings. I think that's a good way to put it. Um, We are struggling to find our certified staff, um, our hourly classified staff. Um, we had a couple um, administrator openings this year through retirements. Um, we were, I think we were very lucky to get who we who we got, but it was a struggle to find them as well. Um, we had one applicant for the middle school in our first round, and that applicant I actually hired for the high school because mm. I thought she was a better fit because she applied for both. So we did a couple rounds at the middle school, but we found found an applicant. But they, um, you know, all levels, all classifications of employees, we've had, we've had struggles. There's been, I think, a couple, couple things to that. One is, you know, if you look at, at where Arizona is on per pupil spending, we're very low. Mm-hmm. And there's something that just came out from the JLBC, which listed ranked basically all the school districts and their per pupil spending. And we were 17th from the bottom. So out of the 200 and some odd school districts, our school student spending or our cost or amount of money that we spend per student is 17th from the bottom in a state where we were you know, two from the bottom, 48th down. So um, we are we don't have bonds. We don't have overrides. Um, I think we're in that size of district where we don't get the economy of scale that some of the uh, the Phoenix and Tucson districts get, and but we're not small enough to get the small school adjustment. And so we we are right in that, it's not necessarily a sweet spot, but in that <laughs> spot that it makes a little bit, um, we struggle a little bit. Um, we have tried to accommodate or fill our positions. We've hired some um, international teachers. We have five inter, uh, Filipino teachers, four special ed and one kindergarten. We have a Dutch psychologist, and these are all on on visas, um, either H-1B or J-1 visas. Um, we are we've started a Grow Your Own program, where we incentivize our classified staff to go to school, get their bachelor's degree. We help them out financially, and then also um, help them get through the certification process so that we can get them certified in various areas. This year. Um, for actually for sc- next school year, we've hired an instructional coach and her job um, is to coach those teachers that are, have not gone through a traditional certification process mm-hmm. because we found that they are, they have the most issues 
not having had the pedagogy and the student teaching and that experience. So her job will be, she's actually one of our principals that retired from an administration. She's gonna be our instructional coach in that area. Um, in the past, um, in Yavapai County, we used to, a group of us would fly up to South Dakota where they have, you know, in the Midwest, if you're familiar, they have all these liberal arts colleges spread all over and they are generating or graduating some great teachers. And that area at the time had a lower, well, they, they didn't have the openings and the pay wasn't as great. And we'd sell the experience here, three hours to the canyon, and six hours to the coast and three hours to Mexico. We have, you can ski and, and sunbathe in the same day. And, <laughs> and so we were getting some young South Dakotans out and, um, and even at that time, and that was pre-COVID, even at that time, one of the struggles was them finding housing mm -hmm. um, in the area. So uh, we've, we've, for several years, we've been on a 40 week. That has been a huge recruitment and retention tool. People will actually take less money. Employees will take less money to work their 40 hours over four days and have a three-day weekend. Um, for, for those that have been teachers or no, no teachers, you know that typically one of those weekend days is a work day yep. just to kind of catch up. Yep. Now they can do that on Friday and still have a, a weekend. Not that we encourage that, but I think that's just the reality of, of how educators work. So those are some of the things that we've experienced. Um, we do know that, for example, our international teachers, they had trouble finding housing. Uh, they don't drive. So proximity is important. Um, they ended up right now living in Prescott, which is 15 miles away, relying on others to get them here. I've driven them home before because I, I live not too far from them. And um, they've taken Uber and taxis to get to work, which costs 50, $75 just to get to work. Wow. So um, because there is not the housing in, in the area to live in a, in a manner that they can afford. You, you've mentioned a lot of the recruitment strategies, and you just briefly touched on the retention portion of that. I, I don't think you can talk about one without the other. How does your retention rates vary year over year? Have you found that what you're doing is successful? What we're seeing is we're losing about 25 to 30 percent of our certified staff annually, hmm. um, which is anywhere from 30, around 30 teachers annually that we're, we have to um, uh, onboard every year. Mm. That's tough. Um, and we're not losing them to neighboring districts either. It's not like they're going to Humboldt, which is Prescott Valley or Prescott schools. We're losing them to uh, the Valley out of state uh, and then retiring. I, you mm. know, I think the, I think nationwide, the, uh, teacher core is more on the, you know, is more on the experience side. I'll say, I won't say old, I'll say experienced. <laughs> and, <laughs> Good call. <laughs> and, you know, I think they're, they're getting towards that, that retirement age, you know, I'm, I'm 55, I'll be 55 when I retire and I'm going to be in a second career. But, you know, I think that, that it's to the point where we're going to, we're losing a lot to retirement as well. And, and which is unfortunate because that's a, that experience really helps our younger teachers that are coming in, especially those that are the non-traditional pathways on certification that we don't, mm -hmm. it's tough to lose that. Um, so, you know, we have that turnover. We've tried to do things um, retention wise 
um, signing bonuses, even for our returning staff. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you, you show up, you get a thousand dollars, your first pay or two thousand dollars. That one time funds that doesn't that does not necessarily uh, commit the district long term financially when we can't, but we may have some money that we can short term or one time money. Um, and, you know, and, and and for at least our classified staff, one thing that's been good for our classified staff, it's a struggle to accommodate is the increase in minimum wage in Arizona, mm -hmm. going from 835 five, six years ago. Now it's going to be close to $15 an hour. Uh, and so our, our district minimum wage for the next fiscal year will be $15 an hour. But we're competing against McDonald's and and Burger King where they're offering the same thing. There's no health benefits and they actually, the employee takes home more, but you there's not the retirement benefits that we have to offer. And so that's difficult when you're, when we're trying to get people that, that help educate our kids and they can go make more money at McDonald's. So how did the conversation around rural housing for your teachers start? What was the, the genesis of that and who was involved? So it's been going on for about six, seven years um, with a recognition with the politics in our community. The community is adverse to, uh, to multifamily housing, apartments, duplexes. That's the, the, the culture in the area is large lots, you know, uh, horse properties. Um, we're a ranching community, a farming community. And that high density housing is just not um, a desired uh, thing in the community. And so that's where our younger teachers or new teachers new to the either the profession or new to the community, that's where they'd at least start out. And we don't have that. Uh, we have very little of that. Um, I did a, a study just recently as part of this project um, for our we serve two communities in, in Chino Valley schools, the town of Chino Valley and the unincorporated area of Paulden, which is about 10 miles north of Chino Valley, 400 square miles, huge, a huge school district, um, not in Arizona, but I think in general, when people mm -hmm. hear that 400 square miles, there were seven rentals wow. for rent on rents.com when I looked a couple weeks ago, seven for the entire two communities put together. There's none in Paulden and seven in Chino Valley, and they were all homes, um, no, no apartments. You know, that's, that's been going on for a while, just a lack of, a lack of um, high density housing. Um, I was talking to Yavapai College, they recognized it. Um, I've spoken to the hospital, they're having trouble housing, um, their nurses and even doctors, even physicians are not coming to the area because of the lack of affordable housing. And, and I don't want to use affordable even, that has some negative connotations. We're really talking workforce housing, mm -hmm. um, impacting nurses, um, firefighters, police officers, um, teachers. So, you know, it's 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 affordable housing tends to have that connotation of subsidized housing. This is just housing that our workforce, you know, our middle class workforce employees can afford. So. Um, I initially we started out thinking, you know, we have some property behind one of our schools working with the Yavapai College. They actually have a class on 3D printing of homes where oh. it's, it's like a giant, um, it just 
squirts out concrete into walls and and um, they just haven't gotten the technology down to the point where it's a viable for what for our project. But that's one, one thing we talked about five, six years ago. Um, COVID hit, things kind of as as everywhere, things kind of got put off. Coming out of COVID, we, we, the need for teachers was even greater. Um, there was fewer teachers out there, fewer teachers coming out of the, the universities and the colleges. And so we just said, we said, we need to do something. Um, that in conjunction with, we did a, just a kind of a survey or a staff. Um, how are you feeling financially? How are you feeling, you know, and, and took a, a pulse of our, the, of our staff. And the number one thing that came out was the, the um, cost of housing hmm. and how that was impacting them. And at the same time, and again, this is a function of COVID, Department of Education got some federal funds, decided to put some of that towards a grant that the Yapai County Education Service Agency, basically the Yapai County Schools Office, and the Coconino County Schools Office partnered to get a $3 million matching grant for um, teacher housing. And so we were able to kind of, we were kind of up further along than most, and we were able to, we were awarded a $500,000 grant uh, matching grant to help offset it and our project, um, we just kind of move forward with it. So another thing that's going on is we seem to be having an influx. And I mentioned that the community is growing, but not the district. An influx of people coming from out of state. They don't have a connection to the school district. Mm-hmm. They've educated their kids, typically don't have kids, don't want to pay taxes. We're a low tax area and they want to come here and live on their acre, two acres and not have that um, and, and maintain that rural community. Are you seeing other districts, not just here in Arizona, but outside of Arizona as well, that are in the process of doing the same kinds of things? And are you collaborating and communicating with them? So um, the answer is yes. And uh, part of this grant, there were, I think, six school districts that received funding. Um, you have examples like Sedona, they have an empty school and they're converting the existing building into apartments. Um, uh, I'm, I have a really close relationship, a really great relationship with Prescott Schools, our neighboring school district. And they have some property and they're putting modular homes on that property at one of their schools. And they're partnering with the t- city of Prescott. They're putting in, I think four modulars for teachers and one for fire and one for police all mm-hmm. on the school district property. Baghdad, um, out in Western Yampai County, they've had been having housing for a while through the mine, um, but they are going to be adding some additional housing. I have a colleague that lives up in Cedar, or actually is the superintendent of Cedar School District, and they've had housing for a long time. He lives in a, a superintendent home because of the lack of housing there. So teacher housing and staff housing is not new, particularly to the remote areas. I think it's just starting to filter down to the less re, re, the the rural areas that are less remote. I think that's going to be a something that's going to continue into the future with the way housing the housing market is. What's interesting is that there are also larger urban school districts that are looking at the same kinds of things, multifamily homes or apartment buildings that they're purchasing and then subsidizing teacher housing in that way. So, unfortunately, this is not just a a problem with rural communities. It's many communities. Well, one of the exciting things also, I think, is 
it doesn't all look the same. Um, I know out in Parker, they bought a hotel and they converted a Parker Unified, converted a hotel. I think down in Vail, they did a, a mobile home park, not or a uh, like a, an RV park or mobile home park where the employee actually owns the building and just rents the space from them. You've got, like I mentioned, Sedona re- doing a school. We're doing, um, I'd hate the word tiny houses. We'll call them studio units. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, we're doing studio, 10 studio units. Prescott is doing modular homes. So I think that there's really the sky's limit on what it's going to look like. And it's, it's, it may be, it's, Depends on the community. It depends on the available funds, um, on the available. You know, we happen to have land. Sedona has a building, so kind of de- it, it's just the 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 possibilities. I think are endless on what this looks like. What's the response been from your community and from the teachers and your governing board? Talk a little bit about what that's been like. The support from the governing board has been great. Um, they recognize the need. Um, they've been, it, it's one of my goals as a superintendent that they've identified you're going to get this done. So the governing board's been fantastic, 100% um, support there. The community, it's been interesting. Uh, we have a very good relationship with the, the town of Chino Valley. And so I've been, we've been talking to them uh, several times during this process. People have been complaining about the project to the town, but no one's been calling us directly. And I don't know if they think that the town will stop the project or what, um, or why that is, but there's some that that don't want it to take place. Um, It's where it's located. It's state land on two sides and empty parcels on the other two. So it's, there's not neighbors nearby. And so maybe that hasn't, caused the problem per se, or that, that hasn't caused people to complain or community concern. Um, they're concerned about where the money's coming from. And, and, and we'll talk about that later, I think, but um, the, so, you know, the community has been kind of mute on it. Um, I have a, a group that I meet of teachers and other staff members that I meet with monthly called the superintendent employee advisory committee. And so this is something that we've been talking about for a couple of years and uh, the, a lot of support from the staff. Um, they recognize the need. The, they have some concerns, you know, we're living in company, the company housing quote that, <laughs> that you hear about, um, you know, and, and things like that. But I think in general, uh, they, they, they are supportive. I also, there's been some concern from some, some, uh, a statewide teacher group, this is not a, a solution to the problem. You need to pay teachers more. And I completely agree. But this money, if we gave it to teachers, would be one-time money. It's not something that could happen for a long time. And it's this is an investment to try to help teachers ultimately. But I completely agree. The, a better solution would be to pay teachers more. That's just not a viable solution at this time. Especially if there's a lack of housing to begin with. Correct. Yeah. So let's jump into that funding question, uh, because it is part of the whole consideration of the process that you're moving in. Uh, How did you secure funding? You talked a little bit about the grant, but there was a match to that. So how did you secure those other funds? And then how much is it going to cost? How many units are you building? What's the cost per unit? And then are there ongoing costs? 
So the, you know, we started this, we kind of threw out a budget um, of one and a half million dollars. And so that when we did our request for proposals and, and the way that we did it is we were very vague in what we were looking for. And I say that because we wanted to see what the developers and contractors, what kind of ideas they would come up with. Mm. So we wanted to give them the freedom to tell us, okay, we're going to put modulars. We're going to put, you know, um, studio units. We're going to put uh, um, uh, duplexes. We, we didn't really care what we got as long as it met the need. And, and we were looking for things for uh, creative ideas. So, um, and that, that funding, you know, we were hoping for the grant, which we got, um, we were, we, re, uh, we are financing about $900,000 and, um, that payment will be paid through rents, mostly covered through rents. And then there's, um, a fire lane that's required by our local fire department, uh, central Arizona fire and medical, um, agency or authority, which we're using adjacent ways for. Mm-hmm. So, um, which is for those that don't know, it's it's specific to improvements adjacent to a property, a school property, or fire lanes and um, bus lanes on the property. So, um, we are going to be u- utilizing some adjacent ways funding that we have. We kind of just threw it out there. We have the we only had one viable bidder. We had two bids. One did not meet the bid bond requirements that we had. So we only had one, um, but it, it, we think it was it was a good good solution. It's the studio apartments, twenty by twenty, um, a little less than four hundred square feet. When you think about the walls and the inside um, space, the um, ten units, uh, and you might think, well, that you know, four hundred square feet, and your each unit's going to cost uh, one hundred and fifty thousand um, dollars. You need to remember this is raw land. So there's the, you know, we could get, we got water to the property line um, using well water. Um, there is no sewer um, in the area. So they have to, that includes the septic system that they need to put in all the water infrastructure on the property, the electrical infrastructure on the property. It's in a flood zone. So there's also the, the, the grading that they have to do to, to improve it and get it out so that it doesn't flood. So there's a lot of work a lot of infrastructure work before they can even start putting in the buildings. We are limiting to two adults in each unit um, or an adult and um, two minor children. So that potentially could be 20 to 30 people that we're housing on that site. You know, it's interesting, the comment that you made about you only had two bids and one was non-responsive. Because that could be a concern for other leaders that are looking to do that, that the the bidding for rural communities tends to be not as heavy. <laughs> uh, there's not as many interested vendors that are looking to work in rural communities. Is that something that you're seeing in your area, not just your district, but in the other communities that are looking at building? Yeah, and I that, that that I would say that's accurate. And we even went out and you know prior to the bid, we were bringing in contractors in, in meetings saying, "Hey, this is what we're going to do. Just be thinking about it." We weren't we were you know we wanted we wanted to stir up the interest. We we gave this to our local our county contractors association. Um, and so it may be 
it, you know, we did a whole package and that may have been limiting when you're talking about someone doing the, 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 uh, the infrastructure work and the construction and everything else. And so it may be a better, there may be a better way to bid it. We, I think we were lucky. Um, we were hoping for three and really the, the two that didn't, or the one, uh, non-responsive. And there was another bidder that, that, um, we had talked to, it was a, it had nothing to do with the project. It was a bid bond issue and neither could get only one of the three could get a bid bond. You know, we, we were really trying to stir up interest in this to see as get as many contractors and as many bids, but it, and, and I don't want it. This is not an issue with just this project trying to get anybody to do anything, mm -hmm. any kind of construction is difficult. Um, we have, you know, we have a, a $20 million HVAC project going on at all four schools because we don't have air conditioning in our schools. We have swamp coolers. And that is taking us forever to get it going because just trying to procure the, the for the contractor to procure the units, we're talking 100 to 120 AC units, and it's just difficult. So construction in general is, is um, slow and uh, it's, it's definitely not a um, school district's uh, world out there. It's, it's, it's on the contractors. They could pretty much write their own ticket because it's, there's just not, they're not out there. Right. When you're looking at permitting and restrictions and those kinds of things that have to be taken into consideration around any building project, as a school district, were you given any kinds of flexibilities or did uh, were there special kinds of permits that you had to be aware of and to and to, to secure? How did you deal with all of that? So as I mentioned, we have a really good relationship with the town of Chino Valley. And so this is something that we brought to them three, four years ago and talked to their planning department. And so they knew this, this was going to happen. And you know, what we were told was as a school district, we, you know, we are a subdivision of the state of Arizona. Mm -hmm. We're not subject to zoning. So we don't have to worry about, um, you know, our, our school site is, is zoned as um, public school. And so we could basically do anything we want on it as long as it, you know, met codes. So th the things that we were told that we have to follow, flood, fire, dust. As long as we do the flood fire dust, we're in good shape as far as, as zoning and, and codes go. One thing that we we should have done on the front end, and this is something that I recommend that people do, um, we kind of, again, just kind of left it up to the contractors. Contractors were going to the town and saying, hey, can we do this? Can we do that? And the town was treating them as if they were a contractor doing a development. So we had to step in and had a meeting with the town and came up with an agreement on what this is going to look like and um, had it approved by the town and things like they wanted a light in front of each unit. Okay, fine. We can do that. They wanted um, the fire lane, obviously, and they wanted that paved for the dust uh, abatement. So there were certain things that they wanted that were more than reasonable um, that, we, that we were given leeway on because of our relationship with them and us being a subdivision of the state of Arizona that the contractor wasn't getting. So once we came up with that agreement with the town, we were able to give that to the contractors and say, this is what you have to follow. And that's what they used to bid. 
And and it is good advice to do that ahead of time. Yes. And, you know, you really need to develop that that relationship with the town, not just for construction purposes, but, you know, it's it's a whatever your local, enti- you know, government ent- entity is that's going to be doing that, you know, let them know what's going on and get that up front because that's going to save you time in the long run and, and probably money as well. And community support is a part of that too. Yes. So I, I'm sure that the trust, which is most districts insurance carriers here in Arizona, um, has come into play around these houses. Um, what are the aspects of building that they were concerned with? And then moving forward, once you have teachers in those houses, what does that look like? Are there legal concerns outside of insurances? What kinds of things are you having to think about? So as far as a trust concern, as long as we let them know what we're doing uh, when it's complete, then that's just going to be added to our risk pool. And we'll have to pay a little bit more insurance related to that. Um, We already have, our district has a 52 acre farm. And we have a a house on that farm that a teacher lives in that is our our farm manager. He's one of our ag teachers that lives there and, and manages the farm as well. So it's not new to us to have that that teacher housing so not a whole lot of concern with as far as the trust goes um we did talk to our trust um liaison and kind of let her know what was going on so as long as we report that when the time comes to do that that annual review um that's really what they're looking for um you know um i've in talking with some other districts they require the renter to have renter's insurance or the employee so that they they get you know obviously we cover the structure but if it, they were broken into that that's their responsibility or things like that so that's one one thing is we're probably going to end up recommending it but not requiring it and as far as the legal aspects go we are a landlord so we're subject to the the landlord rules just like anyone else will and that is something that we're working with our attorney we'll develop a a, a lease agreement we are in the process now. We have a school board meeting in a few days. We're going to be in the process of having that discussion on kind of the rules and regulations that will eventually become a policy and regulation in, in for the school district on what it looks like. And, and some of that is interesting because if you think about it, um, we already have a policy. As I mentioned, we have a, um, a farmhouse um, about alcohol. You know, obviously alcohol, we don't want employees drinking alcohol. We don't want kids drinking alcohol. It's not allowed on campus. But the policy says, if you live in district housing, you can drink alcohol inside your home. Mm. Just like anyone else would have that ability um, living in their own private residence. Um, But some of the other things that are legal that may not be allowed, uh, vaping, smoking, marijuana, weapons, all those things are things that we have to think about that typically are not allowed on school campuses. And this is school property, but it's a private residence as well. So some, some things that we have to going to have that discussion amongst the board to kind of see how they feel. Um, our, our attorney is saying pretty much you should just not do any of it. And, and part of the concern is you're driving by, somebody's driving by and they see somebody outside smoking or, or vaping or doing whatever outside you know, if the optics of that is not all that great. Um, for us, we don't want vaping and smoking inside just because of the facilities themselves. 
we don't want somebody leaving and somebody moving in that smells like smoke. Yep. So we want a kind of a smoke free environment there. Um, so it's just some, some legal aspects on a typical school property that have to be managed a little bit differently on school property that is also a private residence. Definitely some things to think about. Yeah. What else besides what you just mentioned would be the responsibility of the staff member that lives in that home? So uh, for, so besides rent, they have electricity. So these are all electric units. So there's going to be an electrical cost. Money-wise, that's really all that they would have to do. We're still working on um, whether we're going to fence these off and there would be a small area that they may have to maintain as far as weeds and things. Um, I'm probably thinking that if we don't fence it off, then our our uh, landscaping staff would take care of those things. Um, there is, you know, as far as the, the residents are concerned, um, it's telephone. There won't be telephone. They'll have to use a cell phone. There won't be internet. They may be able to get the school internet out there. However, um, it's filtered. Um, and so some of those things, you know, that they may want to watch may not be allowed on, on, on the school internet. So they may have to use their phone or other, other device to get internet and, um, satellite if they want to do satellite, something like that. Everything else is pretty much taken care of by the district. And we'll use those, um, the rent to help pay for our lease purchase payment. And as well as any kind of repairs and maintenance on the facility. Yeah, there's always something that's needing to be repaired or taken care of on a house. What do you wish you knew then when you started the process that you know now? One is I would have tried to solicit more contractors into the process so that we had more than one bid. Um, You know, I'm happy with the bid. I think that that's, I think that that will be fine. Um, I just think it would have been nice to have options Mm -hmm. when it it came to, to that. So one is that, um, as I mentioned before, I would have, even though we involved the town um, a while back, I would have kind of updated that relationship and, and updated that document prior to the bid so that we, we didn't have to do it during the bid process. We ended up extending the bid twice. Um, mm-hmm. So instead of a 30-day bid, it was a 90-day bid to give the contractors the time. Where are you right now in the process of, of building these homes And what's still left to accomplish before you get staff moving in there? So our RFP was issued in September of 22. We uh, we, um, approved the proposal um, in December. They they worked on design in January and February, um, and we broke ground two weeks ago. So they right now are working on, uh, we've had heavy machinery, bulldozers and graders on the site for a couple of weeks now. So they're working on that infrastructure. I drove past yesterday and they were putting in water pipe and a fire hydrant and um, that kind of thing. We've been having some, some uh, discussions about the septic system. And maybe this is something to think about is that this is on a school site that has two other schools or that has two schools and they treat all the septic systems as one big septic system. So you have to worry about the sizes and, and um, 
whether you're going to go get that permitted through the county. They were talking that we may have to go through the Department of Environmental Quality. We think we have it back with the county. So there's there's that septic issue that we're dealing with because it's all one parcel um, that the two schools and this project will be on. So we think we've got that worked out. But um, so that was something that we've been we were dealing with a, a week and a half ago, trying to hammer that out. So, you know, it looks like it's pretty well graded working on the underground. They say the contractor and contractors <laughs> can be very positive about this. They that will have it by the end of July. I um, completed. I believe it's more. I'm telling people late summer, early fall, kind of give a very broad range. Um, so, you know, the contractor still has a lot of work to do. These are going to be stick built um, homes. So um, we'll see. On the district side, we I mentioned that we still need to work on our uh, policies and regulations that impact um, what takes place, um, who's eligible, um, and the priority of eligibility, whether it's new teachers and or international teachers and or you know returning teachers, how long can they stay in this? This is meant to be transitional housing, not long-term permanent housing. So that means one year, two years, three years. So we have that discussion that we have to that needs to take place, and that has to be determined. Really, right now, uh, the at our May board meeting will have a a discussion on these items. Likely in June, take a policy that will take two months to get that policy approved, um, along with regulations. In anticipation that if we have them by the end of of July, fantastic. But we'll have everything in place for people to go in as soon as they're available. Um, then timing is unfortunate. I wish we were maybe six months ahead of this so that incoming staff that are coming new to the district, we start school August, I believe, 2nd. So we have staff coming in in July that they would have homes that they could move into. The timing is not going to work out. Um, again, just like any other construction project, it's, it kind of gets stretched out. Do you have teachers that are clamoring already to be well, selected? Yeah, so we have our international teachers have all contacted me. They, they want to move in. Yeah. And, you know, with the with um, so most of them are on a, what's called a J-1 visa, which is an exchange visa. Their time is limited in the United States to three years. They can actually apply for an additional two. So that no longer than five. And then they have to go back to their home country. Um, that's that's part of the it's a exchange program, just like an exchange student, just more than one year. So the J-1 visa uh, visas are a short period of time. They are clamoring to get in. Um, I've also have a teacher that is commuting 45 miles from Ash Fork every day, um, and she would like to get in. And we had one of our teacher applicants for an English um, position that we have at the high school. One of the questions that they had during their interview with our high school staff or high school administration is, when is your housing going to be ready? I'd be interested. So that was, you know, so we have, I don't think there'll be any issue filling these up. Um, it's a matter of, we want to do this for recruitment and retention. How long are they going to stay? Are we going to have, mm -hmm. I don't want to fill these up and not have them some available for new staff to come in. Um, for actually the next superintendent, I guess. Well, and, and to that point, John, are there going to be future developments? Are you planning on more housing? Um, I am not. Um, I don't <laughs> know that it's really gonna be up to the next superintendent. I really think that we need to give this a, um, uh, some time. 
a year or two to kind of see where how it functions, how how the process works and everything else. And then the board at that time with the new superintendent can make the decision. Can, can they afford it? Um, we have lots of land. We still have septic issues that we'd have to deal with. Um, I was on uh, one of the uh, Phoenix TV stations this morning live. I had an email when I got to my office afterwards. Hey, I have land. I want to work with you to put teacher housing on it. So, you know, I think there's some public-private partnerships that could take place, and that's another route that's, that people can take. Um, this is kind of dipping our, our toe into the into the water, and if it works out, we can kind of go all in later. What are the other superintendents that are in your area that are doing the same thing? Are they planning on more? Are they planning on taking the cautious approach to let's see how it goes? I, you know, in talking with them, I haven't heard of any huge projects um, that any future projects other than than what's taking place. Uh, what I'm hearing is that the ADE may have additional funds up to maybe 30 million to do this like on a statewide um, statewide uh, program. Um, it's unclear if that's good with a, a new administration, if that's going to happen or not. This this grant was done um, on the prior administration's watch. So it's unclear with with um, the change in our uh, state superintendent, what's going to happen. I think that there's the need. I think that there's the desire. I think that if if the state were to um, invest, I think districts would would follow through on it. But I think that the finances are going to be what drives us. Right. Is there anything else that the rural leader that's thinking about it might need to think about in addition to all of the other things you've given us so far? I, one thing that I have that I'm very lucky is I've got uh, a finance, uh, my my business manager and my facilities director have a lot of construction project experience. Mm. And so I'm more the the visionary and I'm pushing them. And I'm still I'm still very much involved in, in everything that's going on. But I the day-to-day stuff is is being taken care of by somebody that has experience in those in those areas. Um, you know, a lot I a lot of times, and I, I was talking about how we're in that kind of middling area where where um as far as size goes, I I know that in those small districts, the superintendent is is the the facilities guy and in a lot of cases as a business manager. And it's going to take some um, experience that I don't have or I don't need to have that they're going to have to have or some knowledge to get something like that done and, so, or, and or rely on other people in the community that are outside of the district. So, uh, you know, each community, there are special people that could get this done in the community. You might have to reach out and rely on them where I didn't have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, you know, when we talk about being a construction superintendent, this was not what we meant five <laughs> years ago, <laughs> building teacher houses. It was building new school buildings. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Is there anything that I haven't asked you, John, that you want to make sure that people that are listening to this know about? I believe that the problem's going to get worse before it gets better when it comes to, to housing for teachers. Uh, I don't see, uh, definitely not in, in, in before my career is over in the next, you know, 14 months, but I think it's going to be a long-term issue. And so I recommend trying to address it now. And we always think, you know, if you think about where prices have gone in the last five, 10 years, I used to be able to buy a bus for 100 and, 
dollars $135,000 five years ago. Now it's over $200,000. If you say, well, we'll just do it later. It's going to cost you 25, 50, 75% more than, than, than doing it now. Right. And so, you know, I understand that it, it, it's a lot of work. It, It, finding the funds is, can be, can be problematic, but ultimately it's going to be better. I think better off doing it now, like I said, than than just waiting. It's good advice. So will you come back after you've had teachers move in and give us an update on how things are going? Absolutely. Absolutely. We're going to have a ribbon cutting. We're, we're going to, we're going to really, you know, get this out. And it's interesting that this started with an article in our local paper, the daily courier, um, Arizona Republic, the state paper picked it up. CNN's picked it up. Fox News has picked it up. <laughs> All the, you know, I've I've done more interviews in the last two months than I have in the past eight years, um, <laughs> with with TV and radio and everything else. There's a recognition of, hey, this is going on. What do, what does that mean? What does that mean for teachers? That there's there's a problem here, and I'm I'm hoping that this whole process can can kind of open some eyes as well um, as, as how some teachers. Well, thank you for spending part of your day with me. I really appreciate it. Not a problem. Thanks for having me. I, I appreciate you. Thank you so much for listening to The Rural Scoop. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe, or even leave us a comment. You can check out previous episodes of The Scoop wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Sadorf so you never miss a new release. See you next time for more great discussions about rural education. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.